Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, it is really good to see all your faces this morning. Um, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Travell, and uh, I've been a member here at Redeemer for the last eight years. And throughout those years, on occasion, uh, the elders so graciously allow me to serve you with the word and preach to you. And that is my task this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, um, I would invite you to turn with me to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 20, and there we're going to be continuing through our series as we look and walk through verse by verse um, the book of Acts. And so while you're finding your way there, I want to pray for our time together. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time that we can gather together as a body. Um, Father, we come now to hear your word and we pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful truths from your word. We pray that you would give us attentive hearts and listening ears to hear the word of God. We don't want to just be hearers of your word, but help us, Lord, to be effectual doers. It's always our prayer, Lord, that by the spirit of God, you would use the word of God to reveal unto us the son of God. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this text, we're going to spend our time through verses 28 through 38. We're camp out there this morning. And so um, this particular passage here, uh, Paul is addressing Christians. He's talking to all Christians, but more specifically, he's talking to pastors. He's talking to elders. And so as we approach this text, we will be spending some time talking about what pastoral ministry looks like and kind of the things that goes along with that. And so I say that at the top to say that you may be here and say, hey, listen, I'm not a pastor. Uh, I have no desire to be a pastor. Uh, But that's not a chance for you to check out of the sermon. This sermon will be very important for you. And the reasons why is because, one, you are a part of a church that has pastors. And so it is your job then to call and to appoint pastors. And also you're to pray for pastors. So we have um, a hand. Everyone has a hand. And it should be um, good for us to know what it looks like to have a faithful pastor. Also, we are called to hold pastors accountable. So you definitely really want to lean in and hear what it's like to see what faithful ministry looks like in the pastorate. And so as we approach this text, throughout the years of God's kingdom on earth, he has always um, mediated his rule through specifically chosen and qualified leaders. Uh, In the Old Testament, there were patriarchs. They were the first group of leaders. And then there were the the judges and the, the prophets and the priests and the kings And then in the New Testament, God now mediates his rule uh, through the church, through evangelists and through pastors, as well as the indwelling Holy Spirit that guides the individual believer. And so now leaderships in terms of all that God is doing in the world is very, very important. God recognizes that because of the chaos of sin, things have to be made subject to authority. And so there is to be Authority and submission. That is a twofold operation uh, that God has in this world. Um, We see that, first of all, God in the beginning ruled directly himself. In the direct will of God, there were no leaders. And there, in fact, were no need for leadership because there was perfect human relationships under a single authority. There was no need to rule over people because there was no unruliness. There was no uh, disorder. There was no discord. God directly ruled, and that in the case of Adam, but then comes sin in the world. And through the fall, and we see as a result of that, there becomes disrupted human relationships. And immediately we see conflict between Adam and his wife Eve, and then we can also see this demonstrated 
the disruption of human relationships illustrated so obviously in the story of Cain and Abel. And that's only the beginning. The chaos that begins in Genesis, it continues to go on and on. And so in response to this chaos, God um, has decided that because of the unruliness of man, because of this disorder that is going as a result of the fall, God has now instituted another kind of order in the world. God now rules over his people through a directed order that falls in one of three categories. The categories are the family, the church, and the state. And in all of these areas, God sets order that there should be leaders and followers, that there should be authority and submission. In the family, the parents are the leaders. In the church, the pastors or the elders, they are the leaders. And in the government, um, in the state, the government officials are the ones who are the leaders. This is God's ordained pattern. And so now we have a multiple kind of authorities that we can look at. And these disrupted relationships, God now brings about some kind of harmony. At least for a time, we can see that uh, humanity can exist in some kind of ease or maybe even some peace. And so now... Written within the framework of God's directed order, we can single out any one of those categories and talk about them. We can talk about the order of the family and how God has instituted the authority in the family through the father, first of all, and then through the father and the mother over the children. We can talk about uh, in the area of government, uh, we can go look at texts like Romans 13 or uh, 1 Peter, and we can find that the Christian is to be subject to the authority that is ordained by God governmentally. But in our time today, for our study, we'll focus on the middle one, which is the church. That God directs his rule in the church through pastors and elders. And this takes us directly into Acts chapter 20. So as we look at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, the apostle Paul is giving information to church leaders. He, namely, he's talking to the pastors or the elders. And so now I want to make a mention that the word pastor or elder or bishop or overseer or presbyter, these are all the same thing, the same office, just different words for them. Scripturally, they're all the same. And so the elder, the pastor, they are responsible for leading the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, they are to be to the church what the priests and the prophets and the patriarchs and the kings were in the Old Testament. And so today... As we approach this text, there's one main idea, one big idea that we'll have hang over this text as we walk through it. And it will be this. Faithful elders will lead people into Christ-like behavior by example. Faithful elders will lead people into Christ-like behavior by example. Simply put, real, true Christian leadership, leaders lead by example. That's the main idea. That is a, a definition of Christian leadership, leading people into Christ-like behavior by example. That's it. That's the precept, that the real dynamic of leading people is to do it in a way that makes them want to be Christ-like by your example. And you know what a leader is? It's simply this by definition. A leader is someone that people are willing to follow. A leader is a person that can gather people to come behind them. A spiritual leader, a true godly leader is only one when someone is following the pattern of their godliness. We see that in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7. The Bible tells us that we are to give an account. We the elders are to give an account for all that they do. We also see that in James chapter 3 verse 1 that we know that teachers will be judged with an even greater condemnation if they fail. That can be a terrible task to uphold, but it also could be a blessing, rewarding one 
So what is a leader to do? A leader is to lead by example because leadership in a true sense is to make people come to a place of Christ-like behavior by following after their path that you've set. Like I said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, the Bible says that he's talking to elders there and he says that you should imitate their faith. That's what the goal of leadership is in the church is that they should be imitating your faith. They ought to be people that are willing to line up behind you or go with you and walk with you and imitate your faith. Leadership simply is a question of example. Now as we come to Acts chapter 20 in our text, again, Paul is speaking to the church of the elders at Ephesus here in this church. And so it's very important that he says that you follow this biblical pattern of leadership that I'm laid out. And the best part about it, so as he talks to them, he reminds them over and over again from verses 17 all the way through 28. He, he says it. All of these areas of leadership, do as I did, just as I did. Do it how I did. Over and over and over again, he emphasizes it. Don't only know the precept, but also following the principle of example. So now we'll pick it up in verse 28. And what we'll find in our section as we come to this text, I have five priorities of Christian leadership. Five things that we'll walk through here. Five priorities of Christian leadership. As he's speaking to the elders, he wants them to know these things. These men that he has himself discipled. He's given them the responsibility of caring for this church and so here it is, principle number one, priority number one. Make sure you're right with God. Number one, make sure you're right with God. He says that you need to be a vessel unto honor and holy before you are ever fit for the master's use. You are the key. Personal holiness is fundamental. My most important task is to prepare myself, not my sermon. If you are a teacher, your most important task is not to prepare a lesson, it's to prepare yourself. To be a channel which, which God can effectively use you. And more than that, in our lesson here, we'll see that if your life is one thing and your lesson is another, then you completely destroy the meaning of the lesson. Therefore, it's important for me to prepare myself and not my sermon. My sermon's important, but my life, preparing myself, is much more important. It's primary. It is the primary responsibility to make sure that you are right before God, that your life lines up the way that it ought to be. Verse 28, pay careful attention to who? To yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourself. This is where it starts. And if you want to go read the qualifications of an elder, you see it in 1 Timothy and the book of Titus. All of the qualifications as you read them that's listed for what an elder is, they're all spiritual. They're all personally spiritual requirements. No man is really useful to God if he is not holy. You're only as useful as you have been set apart to God. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, there's a story, and if you've been around church for any length of time, you know this story. Uh, but if you're here today and you're new to church or new to the Bible, I want to spend some time telling that story. Um, and if you're new to church and new to the Bible, we're glad you're here. We hope that you hear the message of Jesus Christ clearly. But it's the story of David and Bathsheba, right? David, the Bible says that he comes home at the time where kings should be going to war. That's the first thing that you notice. Right? David is somewhere where he shouldn't be at all. He's at home when he's supposed to be out at war. And so he comes out on his roof and he sees a woman taking a bath whose name is Bathsheba. 
I'm sorry, church kid, Christian jokes. Um, he sees her, and he's very bold in his sin. He's not even trying to hide it or cover it up, really. He sends his servants to get her, bring her to me. I like what I see, I want. And he comes, they bring her to him. He sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. So now David, he wants to cover up his sin. And so he calls for her husband, Uriah, calls him back from war and hopes that he would go and be with his wife so he can pun the child off on Uriah, her husband. But Uriah is honorable. He wants to just stay and protect his king so he doesn't go back to his wife. So David, now he's, he's got to figure something out. So David tells them, send Uriah back to her, put him on the front lines. And when you get there, step back and he's slaughtered. So not only does David commit adultery, he now commits murder. And you know what happened when he did that? He rendered himself in terms of uselessness to God absolutely nothing. Zero. He was an unholy instrument. Useless before God. But you know, God is merciful. God spoke to David's heart. And David broke under the weight of his sin. And then David writes down his feelings about this particular sin with Bathsheba in Psalms 51. And I actually want to take some time and read that. So Psalms 51, if you will. Psalms 51 is the broken heart of David over the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah. And I just want you to hear what he says because I think it so illustrates our point very pointedly here, our truth. Here's David crying out to God in the midst of his promises. Psalms 51 verse 1. Hear me, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here's what David says. This is real repentance here. Hear this. David says, I see my sin, I know it, and you are just to punish me for it. He says, I deserve everything that I get. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me verse 12 restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit now watch this verse 13 and then will i teach your transgressions your ways verse 12 restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit and then what happens after you've done that restore me lord and then i will teach your transgressions your ways and the sinners will return to you. David knew that he wouldn't have been worth anything in terms of teaching or converting anyone to the Lord until he was cleansed himself. You see what he's saying here? And there is no difference now. The first priority of the ministry of any man is his own personal holiness. A man is only as good as his holiness in the servants of God. Pay careful attention to yourself. That's principle number one. Priority number one. Make sure you're right with God, too. Priority number two, it's also in verse 28. It's this, to lead, to feed and to lead the flock. To feed and to lead the flock. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Second priority is to lead and to feed. Feed and to lead. To lead, what does that mean? He calls them overseers here. It means to rule. 
The congregation is subject to the authority of the elders. And there is in the church the prerogative of the congregation to choose out from among yourselves men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and faith. And once these men are chosen of God and uh, are ordained by God and placed of God, it is then theirs, their job to lead the flock of God as under shepherds of Christ. Leading the flock. That means making wise decisions for the church. It also means making tough decisions for the church. Leading them into places and to things that will be beneficial to them. Elders need to lead, but they also need to feed. As, as you leave them alone, right? We see this idea, this picture of a shepherd leading his flock alone. As you lead them, where are you leading them to? You are leading them to greener pastures where there's more food. So feeding is just as important. And what do we feed them with? Feed them with the word. We see this illustrated very clearly early in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, a lot was happening in the church at that time. The apostles were like, that's too much that we can't have our hands in all of this stuff. So they began to appoint deacons. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, he says, this is our priority. As we appoint deacons to take care for the business of the church, our priority is this. Acts 6, verse 4, we devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's it. First of all, a New Testament church leader must be one to take care of himself, but also must lead and feed the flock. Feed them with the word. He must give his life to feeding the sheep, to pastoring the people that God has called him to. And now a third thing. A third thing, and this is really the flip side of number two that I just gave you. So the positive side is that you feed and you lead, but here's a negative side. Number three, it's to watch and to warn. Watch and warn the flock. That's three. The faithful elder must watch and warn the flock. Incidentally, not all elders will be the ones who labor in word and doctrine. There are other elders who will labor in the area of, you know, ruling or leading the church. They won't always be the ones who are up preaching and teaching, but all elders have the exact same responsibility. Their responsibility uniformly is to watch and to warn the flock. This is the flip side of feeding, right? The feeding is the positive and the watching and the warning is negative. This is protection. A good shepherd doesn't just blissfully lead his sheep into some dangerous meadows. But no, he watches what's around him. He checks all the crevices in the caves, watching for wolves that may come in and try to strip the flock. A faithful elder must be vigilant. So yes, feeding and leading is part of it, but that's just a forward look. As you look forward, feed and lead, but they also must have a backwards look, watching from what's coming up from the rear. It's a great struggle for the elder. Look at verse 29. He says, I know that, and I love this. He says, I know that, and another translation says this. He says, I know this. He's not saying this is a maybe. I know this. You may say, why do you know it? He says, I know it. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's talking about false teachers coming in. He says, I know one thing. False teachers are going to come, and they're going to arrive as soon as I'm gone. He says, Paul, how do you know that? Paul says, well, I know, that, I know Satan. I know how he works. Wherever the word is sown, Satan will come and sow lies. Wherever there's wheat, there's what? 
Wherever the truth is being proclaimed, Satan will come in with his lies and try to undermine that truth. He says, I know this. I know it. And then he says, for the elders, when you find out about it, you act on it. Because it's the elders' responsibility. It's not just to lead and to feed, but to watch and to warn, to protect the flock of God. False teachers will come. He describes them as fierce wolves. This here is the language of Jesus. Jesus says these same things in Matthew chapter uh, 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus makes a reference to wolves as well. He says this, Beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus says the same thing. He says it again in Matthew chapter 10. He's, at this time, he's sending out the 12 to go and preach, proclaim the gospel, tell of me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out. So as he sends out the 12 to go off, he says, just know you can expect that there will be wolves in sheep clothing. Know that. Expect it. So yes, they are going to come. They're going to come. And you got to be aware because they're coming in sheep's clothing. So they'll come with some a sweet kind of, um, um, a nice kind of religious kind of aura. And they're going to appear to be nice. And we have the Bible too. But inside, really, they're wolves. Satan's wolves coming to strip the flock of God. And what the worst part about that is the people that he's describing, a lot of the times, don't even know they're wolves. They really believe the truth that they're propagating. Paul says in Acts here to the Ephesian elders, he says, get ready, they are coming. And you want to know something? They came. They absolutely came. Paul wrote to Timothy twice. Paul wrote to Timothy and both times... Timothy was the pastor. He was an elder here in Ephesus. In both letters, Paul makes references to false doctrine. Both times. It came. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, for example, the first time that he writes to Timothy, verse 4, he says, uh, and now the Spirit expressly says that later in times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Then he goes on later and says in verse 6, he says, and if you put these things before your brothers, this is the point I want to make, verse 6, if you put these things before brothers, you will be a good uh, servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of a good doctrine that you have followed. Paul tells Timothy, you know what a good minister of Jesus Christ does? He reminds people of the false prophets. He reminds them of the people to watch out for the doctrine of demons. To watch out for people who are coming with deceitful speaking, seducing spirits. So we should thank God for elders who are willing to watch and warn. Because Paul lets us know they are coming. And then he says it here in the text. He says they'll come from the outside to tear you away from God. And the Bible condemns these kind of people so strongly. Just make a reference. I won't read it. But go home and read 2 Peter chapter 2. And there, Peter calls false prophets, false teachers, he calls them filth. He says they're wells without water. He has such strong language for them because he knows they're coming. And when they come, and you know when they come, who they're trying to attack? They want to attack the people who are searching for God, looking for answers. Those who are just turning away from the world and moving towards God. And then they come in and they tear them away. That's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. They're the ones that they're after. 
And Paul probably has something different in his mind as he's, as he's talking to these elders here. He's probably talking about Judaizer or legalists. But, but really, there's all kinds of false teachers to be aware of. And Ephesus wasn't the only city in Asia Minor that had to deal with this problem. Go and read. Make a reference. Go back and read Revelation chapter 2 and see all of the condemnation that Christ has for these churches and their false doctrine. It's a whole list of these things. So they'll come in from the outside. And the second approach of false doctrine in verse 30, not only do they come in from the outside, but they'll come in from the inside. Verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves. So the apostle Paul here, he says, not only are they coming from the outside, but they will rise up from the inside. And they're coming to draw away the disciples. False teachers are on the inside. You may ask, did this happen in Ephesus? Yep, sure enough, it did. This is the church. You may say, are you sure? This is the church that Paul started. These are the elders who have been discipled by Paul. Timothy, he wrote to him. Sure enough, it happened. How do you know? Paul names them. Paul's bold. We're talking about watching and warning. He doesn't make any qualms about it. He names them, calls them out, singles them out. I got a few references. I'll just give them to you to write them down. I won't read them all. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he doesn't even get three verses into the chapter. And then he immediately goes into it and he starts calling people out. He says, when I went to Macedonia, they may change some things. That you tried to change some things of some other doctrines. He says, do you know that people have already crept in just a handful of years since I've been gone? And they're already starting to teach false doctrine, Timothy? Do you know this? That people have risen up right in your congregation, he says to Timothy. And he says, do not listen to their false teachings. Don't listen to them. Apparently, they're teaching all of these uh, legalistic things. He says, don't listen to them. And he goes on a couple of references in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. He calls them out. He says, I'm talking about Alexander over there. Yep, that guy. Him. He says, I gave them over to Satan so that they might not blaspheme. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says it again. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. And lastly, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. These are all references for that. He calls them out. He's telling Timothy, this is happening in your church. I'm hearing about it. Make sure you do something about it. They've crept in. They've come. Warn your people. They speak twisted things. They're speaking perverse things. They're drawing away the people who are just escaping the error of the world. Jude tells us this as well. Jude says, Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. That's your job. Earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Do you know we have to fight? We have to fight to hold on to the faith. And it's not going to be easy. Ministry's hard when it comes to these things. But you have to fight to hold on to the faith. For people will come in. They will creep in unaware, the Bible says. So Paul responds to him in verse 31. He says, they've come in not only from the outside, but they've come in from the inside. So watch. That's the first one. Remember. He says this over a span of three years in the text, he says here. Span of three years. I did not cease to do what? To warn you. So you got to watch. Be on the lookout, but also warn them. These are the two priorities. 
Vigilance is important. And this is one of the things that pastors have to do. This is not just some uh, religious obligation. This is a serious deal. To care for the flock of God means that you have to watch for false teachers and also call them out, warn them. Jesus does this as well in Matthew chapter 13. He says, don't go around and try to find all the, the tares, the wheats and the tares. He says, sometimes the tares are growing with the wheat. They grow together into the harvest. And that's a scary part about ministry for the elder. Because sometimes it means that the tares get in and you can't get rid of them. There's only one way to keep the tares away from the wheat, and that is to watch and to warn. That is a part of ministry. This is a, their responsibility. Paul told this to Timothy. He says in simple words, watch in all things. What Paul tells Timothy is very simple. Watch in all things. Feed them, lead them, but expect false teachers are coming. Watch. He told, God told Ezekiel that I have set you as a man, as a watchman on a wall. Look for the enemy because he's coming. Look for him, and when you see him, warn. Admonish them. Give them counsel. Firm gentleness. Let them know about the false doctrine. Warn them. And that's what I do to you this morning. I warn you. Be aware. Be alert. Expect false teachers will come. Expect false doctrines. The Bible tells us to be sober and to be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be sober. Be vigilant. Watch for them. And that's the position of a faithful elder. Contend for the faith. And the only way that you can contend for the faith is to actually know the faith that you claim. So I warn you, Paul warned him. He says, over three years, I did not cease. It's like a broken record. Consistently, I did not cease to warn you day and night. We see this, Paul makes this reference um, in other books. He says, it is my priority, day and night. He says, and I did it with tears. I wept. This is a terrible thing. Terrible consequences come because of false teachers and false doctrines. And so I didn't sleep. I warned you day and night. He says that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, I labored night and day. He says and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, I worked night and day. He says, I warned you night and day in this text, in, my book, in the book of Acts. Over three years consistently I warned you, did not cease to warn you with tears streaming down my face. And this is what faithful elder looks like. A shepherd watches over the flock by day and by night. So the pastor is to be vigilant. So the elder is to protect them from the wolves of false doctrine. And Paul says, do it like I did it. Again, leadership is that of an example. Do it just like I did it. So in addition to your own spiritual lives and leading and feeding and watching and warning, fourthly, fourth priority is to study and to pray. To study and to pray. Number four, to study and to pray. This is a, a dual priority. It isn't new, right? Again, going back to Acts chapter 6, verse 4. Devote yourself to the ministry of prayer and the word. Study and pray. He says, give yourself to this. That is the heart of a leader. Verse 32, and he says, now, brother, I commend you to God. Stop right there. I commend you to God. You know what that is? That's prayer. He says, everything I do, that's prayer. And one of the hardest tasks, if you've never preached, one of the hardest tasks about caring for God's word and giving it to God's people is to give it up to God. That's 
ultimately our job. It's hard, but it's what our job is. After I've done all that I can do, after I've told you all that I can tell you, I've given you all the truth that's in my heart to give you, I've given you all the knowledge in my head that I want to explain to you, when it's all said and done, when I'm done preaching, I have to commit you to God. Got to give you to God. And that's the part of the ministry. You got to know. When you get to a place where you're satisfied with all that you've accomplished and you pat yourself on the back, that means you're dead. This is his flock. This is God's church. And so we commit you to God because it's his. And it's ultimately his job to safeguard it and to keep us and to care for us. And so Paul says, I commend you to God. I give you over to God. And everything the church does should be bathed in this kind of commitment. This, I believe, is the priority of any real kind of ministry. We must pray about everything. Everything we must do must be committed to God. You see that all throughout the book of Acts as we've been studying the book. Every time they got together to do something, what did they do first? They prayed. You find it. And when they needed a a new apostle after Judas was gone, in Acts chapter 1, verse 24, they got together and what did they do in order to choose one? They prayed. By the time you get to chapter 2, what are they doing? They're in the upper room doing what? Praying. Chapter 2, verse 42, he says they came together to break bread and to do what? To pray. You go further and the gospel begins to expand and they're praying. Chapter 6, when they start to anoint deacons, they anoint them and they pray. Later on, as you go and they send off Paul and Barnabas, what do they do? They pray. And when we get to a new area and they're ready to do ministry, before they start that, they pray. Everything that they did is bathed in prayer. Everything. Why? Because they gave everything they had to God. There is no substitute for prayer. None. There is no substitute for prayer. Not prosperity, not programs, not good ideas, not growth, not success, not confidence, not talent. None of these things are a greater priority or a substitute for prayer. None of these things. And it's so easy for the church to get so organized, to get so many wonderful programs and have so many good committees and wonderful methods that they have a lot of carnal success and they take credit for it. It's so easy for that to happen. But really, we need to commit everything to God and just say to God, it is yours. I don't want it. It's all yours. That's what we need to do. Prayer. Everything the church does needs to be bathed in prayer. Before you do anything, it should not be an afterthought. It shouldn't be, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and oh, oh, God bless it now. No. Before anything comes to fruition, it should be committed to God through prayer. Prayer shouldn't just be some kind of sanctified salt that we throw on our human ideas. We should pray about everything. Pray, and the second thing, study the word. He says, I commend you to God and to what? And to the word of his grace. And so what happens here? He says to the elders, he says, listen, guys, I give you to God and I give you to his word. That's all I have for you. You belong to God, here's his word. That's again, Acts 6 and 4. Our whole commitment is to the ministry of prayer and the word. And he says it here, the word will build you up. It builds you up. Spiritual growth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. It says that you may grow thereby by the pure milk of the word. 
That's how we grow. The word causes us to grow. Back in Acts chapter 20, and what does it do? And it gives you an inheritance amongst whom of, of all who are sanctified. The word grows you up and the word secures the promise of our inheritance. The Bible continues to guarantee your inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That means that those who are set apart and holy unto God. There is an inheritance for you. And if you're here today and you're a Christian and you don't have assurance of that, study the word. Because as you study the word consistently, the word will consistently over and over again give you assurance of the inheritance that we have in Christ. Study the word. The word feeds us and it makes you grow and it gives us assurance. So prayer and the word. Prayer and the words. These are the priorities. As you study the word, you're built up. And you're assured of the promised inheritance that is really yours for those who have been set apart through Christ. Well, lastly, very briefly here, the last priority for the elder is this, for the pastor, is freedom from self-interest. Freedom from self-interest. Paul uses himself again as the example, verse 33. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourself know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And in all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What is Paul saying here? He's saying it again. One thing that I want you to remember in your ministry, that you're going to be giving, giving, giving. It's not about receiving. He says, I never coveted any silver. I didn't cover any gold from you. I didn't want any of your clothes. Freedom from self-interest. Wasn't about me. Simply put, he says it here, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You can't be in this for anything else. That's the heart of Paul. He comes and he says, I'm, I'm telling you, I could have asked of you. He says it. I have the right to ask you, but I didn't. I worked to earn my own keep just to show you the pattern of this example. And he says, and if God wants to bless you, that's absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with that. Paul even says later to the elders, um, to Timothy, in First uh, Timothy chapter 5, he says that the uh, elder that is worthy of double honor, excuse me, elder is worthy of double honor. And many commentators says when he says that in First Timothy 5, that that means financial. The honor there means money. Paul made a statement. He says, it's okay for you to receive. I had the right to ask of you, but I didn't. I had no self-interest. And so as you look for elders, and we talk about elders here today, beware of men who want to make much of themselves, who want to build a platform. Beware of those who make much of their name and not the name of Jesus. Freedom from self-interest. I'm in this for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. That's it. It's not about me. God used me, but it's not about me. Get me out of the way. Beware of those kinds of people that would come and build themselves up in front of you. Beware of that. And this is hard. It's hard because we are finite humans. We are sinners and we're prone to these kinds of things. We want Praise is great. It's really good to hear it. It's so easy for an elder to make much of themselves. This is hard. 
But the good news is, is we have a perfect example in Jesus. And I want to read a text to you as we get ready to close. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said for us. Who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's good news. We have a perfect example in Jesus. Humble yourself. It's not about you. Jesus himself humbled himself so that we could be saved. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. That's good news. So what are the priorities of ministry? It's make sure you're right with God. Self-examination. Feed and lead the flock. Watch and warn. Pray and study and have no self-interest in this. And when you minister like that, there can be some rewards to that. And it's, let's look at these last verses as, as we read them in closing. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping. And on the part of them all, they embraced Paul. And they kissed him. And being sorrowful for all, most of all because of the word that he has spoken, that they may not see him, his face again. And they accomplished him to the ship. This can be a blessed reward when you minister like this. The people will love you and they will embrace you and they will pray for you and they will build you up. Look at the affection that they had for Paul because of he lived this example. Faithful elders, faithful elders will be those who will lead people into Christ-like behavior by example. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the portrait of what it looks like to have faithful elders. And we're grateful for Redeemer Fellowship, that we do have faithful elders here. And Father, we pray for all of our elders, that they will continue to exhibit and live a life of personal holiness, that they will be continually studying and praying and have a hunger for the word and to lead us and to feed us and to have no interest in this. We pray for our elders. We pray for elder candidates. And we pray that you would help us continually as we grow further. Father, as the... Seed of the word has been watered and planted. We pray by your spirit. You bring forth your increase in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.